called the Christian Constitution. It is the most complete explanation of the Christian faith in all of the Bible. In other words, if you really want to understand the Christian faith, you can't read anything better. In the same way that if you want to understand the design for governing, for the, design for governing the American people, you couldn't read anything better than our United States Constitution. The definition of a constitution is it is a written document embodying, embodying the basic principles and laws of a nation, state, or social group. Now, we Christians are not a nation. We are a kingdom, and our state is a state of grace. And we are not a social group, but we are the church. But to describe Romans as a Christian constitution ought to give us a hint of how important this letter is. Listen to what Martin Luther had to say about the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans. He said, this epistle is really the most important part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder it or ponder over it too much, for the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Romans has had a massive effect on men that have had a massive effect on us. Listen to some of these testimonies <clears throat> that I've gotten from various places. We'll go first again back to Martin Luther. A very interesting story he had in his interaction with the book of Romans. Martin Luther sought desperately in every corner of the church to find peace and assurance of salvation. The law of God had him feeling as if he were hanging, suspended over the pit of hell, kind of like Jonathan Edwards' spider. One evening, as he was preparing lectures, his heart and mind were illuminated by a fresh understanding of the book of Romans. This is what he said. He said, when I understood this text, the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. It was a verse in the book of Romans that awakened Luther to the doctrine of justification by faith alone and persuaded him that this was the article upon which the church stands or falls. And that verse was the famous verse, Romans 1.17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Luther had been trying to earn his salvation instead of just having faith, and this verse set him free. So do you suppose that God has used that conversion to have an effect on us in the world? That's a guarantee. Who has heard of John Wesley? He started the Methodist Church. The 24th of May, 1738, was the day and hour of John Wesley's conversion while a group was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. This is the famous Aldersgate experience where Wesley reported that his heart was strangely warmed. Wesley speaking, saying this, he said, It came somewhat unexpectedly, it would appear, at 8.45. On the evening while the speaker was describing the change that God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And then there's Augustine. Augustine, as a young man, had, an already distinguished him, has, had already distinguished himself as an extraordinarily brilliant philosopher. But he had equally distinguished himself as a shamelessly immoral soul who was living a wild life until, at the beckoning of some children he overheard, he picked up a Bible and just let it fall open. And his eyes came upon a text. And as he read this text, his life was turned upside down as God the Holy Spirit used the words of that text to pierce his soul 
and transform him to the saint that he became. The book that God used to save the soul of Augustine was the book of Romans. And the verses he read were Romans 13, um, excuse me, Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, which says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. When Augustine started reading those two verses, he was the man described in verse 13. When he'd finished, he became the man in verse 14. He had put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are forever grateful to the Lord for saving that man. Those are three of the ten most influential Christians since the apostles of the first century, and God used the book of Romans to convert their souls. Paul wrote his Roman letter from Corinth, which is in Athens, in Greece, near Athens, to the, church, uh, to the believers in Rome in about 56 to 57 A.D., or some 25 to 30 years after Christ died and rose again, the church in Rome was probably formed by pilgrims or travelers, tourists maybe you would call them, returning from Jerusalem after being saved as a result of hearing Peter's famous sermon in Acts 2, 14 through 36. Paul had visited many of the new church plants throughout the Mediterranean area, but he had not been able to visit the church in the most important secular city in the world, that being Rome. Therefore, Paul felt the need to write an exhaustive letter to them explaining the faith, exhaustive meaning thorough and complete. I will start by reading the first four verses of Romans chapter 1, and there are a few very important words here that we must take a moment and explain to make sure we understand them. Romans 1, 1 through 4, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. First line says, Paul, a servant. We've discussed this before, but is servant the best translation here? I think it's important to understand this. John MacArthur wrote a book about this, so we're in good company to explore it. What would the original writers have preferred that word be? Michael briefly spoke on this a few weeks back, and I may have touched on it once when I preached a few months back. I can't remember if I did or not. However, it's worth revisiting. The original Greek is the word daulos, D-O-U-L-O-S. And it means literally a slave, one who gives himself up to another's will, devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interest. We are slaves to Jesus. Slaves to a loving master is probably a better understanding and mindset for us to have than just a servant. A slave to a master will persevere and never quit. A servant can and usually will quit when the going gets too tough. Do you buy a servant? No, you don't. Do you buy a slave? Yes, you do. And we were, brought, when we were bought with Jesus' precious blood, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. That describes a slave and one who is purchased with the most valuable commodity ever known to man, the blood of Jesus Christ. The next word we need to look at and discuss is a word we use constantly, but do we really know exactly what it means? Uh, the first verse starts by saying, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. What does the word Christ mean? Is that 
Jesus' last name and his mom and dad are Mr. and Mrs. Christ? No. Jesus probably did have a full earthly name. It would have been Jesus bar Joseph, which means literally Jesus, the son of Joseph. So no, Christ was not his last name. Christ was his title. The Christ would be more appropriate. So what does Christ mean? The Greek word is Christos or Christos. means the anointed, means the anointed one. Many are anointed, but he was the anointed one of God. Hebrew word for Christ is, of course, Messiah. They are interchangeable. They mean the same thing, the anointed one. And here is Jesus explaining that special anointing of himself in Luke 4, 18. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to, pro- to, pro- to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Anointing is usually a literal act, symbolizing a spiritual act. Literal olive oil with special spices in it was sprinkled on the head of the one anointed or chosen for a very special duty or life. The first to be anointed like this was Moses' brother Aaron, so he could be the, the first high priest and he would be able to go into the tabernacle in the wilderness. But Aaron was not perfect and we need a perfect high priest. Many have been anointed since, but the only perfect anointing, the greatest anointing, the anointing of all anointings, is the anointing of Jesus by his Father in heaven. He is the Christ. So he is called Jesus Christ. Together, that means Jehovah is salvation, which is what Jesus means, the anointed one, which Christ means, Jesus Christ. Another another word we need to quickly look at because it is so important to who Paul is and what he means to us, and that word is apostle. Apostle, Greek word is apostolos. It means a delegate. It means a messenger, one sent forth with orders. Specifically, it applied to the 12 apostles of Christ. In a broader sense, it also applied to Paul and even perhaps Barnabas. One of the things that set them apart was the ability to do miracles. What we know for sure is that no apostle made it out of the first century, and there has never been one since that time. It is no longer an office of the church, but many have self-appointed themselves apostles out of their own arrogance. In today's world, perhaps a defining mark of what the Bible would call a wolf in sheep's clothing would be if a religious leader called himself or allowed himself to be called an apostle. And by the way, those two words, set apart, are probably the most perfect definition of an apostle, a true apostle. They have been set apart from others. They are special according to, uh, according to God. The wolves that would call themselves apostles today think they are special and set themselves not apart but above others. There's no servant in uh, their calling. We also studied some other words from these two verses uh, upstairs with the youth. We studied the word gospel, euangelion, the good news and its relationship to the bad news. We studied the word prophet and the word holy several times. We have studied many words upstairs together because words and their meanings are always important, especially when those words are found in the Bible. And if anything, the war of cultures in our society today is a war over the meanings of words. You may have noticed. So we have studied, and this is, you'll have to be patient, we have studied at least once the following words, and these are not all. We have studied the words father, Hallowed, heaven, 
debt, temptation, evil, pastor, slave, exaltation, humility, steadfast, faithfulness, hypocrite, partiality, mercy, peace, passion, sanctification, faith, and grace. And that's not all of them. We've even studied the word love and discovered that there are four Greek words to describe the different kinds of love when English only has the one word for love. You'd think we wouldn't need to define love, but in these days I think it's a good idea, don't you? We study these words for a reason, and I would like to bring that reason to your attention. It's important. If you don't understand certain important Christian words, it can sneak up and bite you later in your Christian life. We have talked about and defined and studied a lot of important Christian words that every Christian has heard many times, but many of us don't really know what these very important words mean in their fullest sense. It can be a slippery slope to hear these words your whole life but not understand their meaning, so upstairs we try to define and discuss a lot of words. I'll give you an example of where knowing what the word means may help you. Um, I'm trying to help them be able to choose the right church in a few years for their own families. So part of that was studying the word apostle, and perhaps it will help them to know that if the sign out front of a church they're visiting says the pastor is named apostle so-and-so, you can keep on driving past that church. Because we have learned from the Bible that the office of apostle no longer exists. And if the sign on the church has two church leaders, a husband and wife team, and they both have the word apostle in front of their names, you can drive by a little bit faster. So one of our main goals as a church and as teachers is maturity in Christ. I mean, we celebrate when a baby graduates from regular diapers to huggies, but it's sad if that baby is still wearing huggies when he is 14 years old. Do you understand that gross, ridiculous analogy? (laughs) We're trying to get folks to be able to feed themselves by studying and reading God's Word. The Bible says this in 1 Peter 2, verse 2. Like newborn infants, long or crave for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And we should cry out for that milk. But it also says this in Hebrews 5, 12, and 13. You have been believers so long now that you ought to, now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Eventually, if we don't learn to feed ourselves the word, and that's what we talk about upstairs, that could be us. That is the message. That is the reason that we study certain words. You see, I I told you there would be some rabbit trails today. Well, there was our first one. So back to our text for today. Paul was set apart and enslaved as an, as an apostle to preach the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So if you wanted to restate verse 1, just using the definitions of the words we've studied, it could be Paul, a slave of the anointed one, Jehovah is God, called to be a special messenger, set apart to preach the good news of God's salvation. And with that, we finally move on. To verse 2. Sometimes the kids say, finally, when we move on. So here we are. Romans uh, verse 2. Romans chapter 1, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So, what is Paul trying to say or prove by verse 1 and 2? What is the purpose? 
And what we have here are two brief resumes. And, you know, what's a resume? Of course, the reason I ask is because we ask all these in youth. Well, here are a few lines from a very old resume of mine showing my past experience, as an example. And this is copied and pasted. Responsible for oversight of shop floor and workers. Responsible for training, procedures, efficiencies, and quality of work and production. Shipping, receiving, material purchasing, creating material and finished goods inventories. Work scheduling and expediting work orders through a networked operating system and personal communication with the workforce. I promise you I don't work that hard, but that was on a resume. So what was I trying to do there? I was trying to sell myself to get someone to trust that I was right for this job. A resume is a short account of one's career and qualifications, a set of accomplishments given to try to sell yourself or try to convince someone that you are right for the job. So if these two verses are a brief resume, who is Paul trying to sell himself to? He's trying to sell himself to his readers. In this case, the church in Rome, and by church we mean all the believers in Rome. At that time, Rome would have had about one million citizens, so it would have had a pretty sizable church meeting at houses and rooms all over the city. Paul is not bragging, but is giving his credentials. At the beginning of this letter, this very important letter, so those that receive the letter will hire him, so to speak, to be a spiritual leader and teacher that they can surely trust that his message that he will relay in this uh, letter is reliable. He is a slave to Christ. On a spiritual resume, that means he is all in. He is called by Jesus to be an apostle, his hand-picked messenger. Many in his readership would know that, meant, that that meant Paul had done miracles, and miracles were signs, remember, that not only could the message be trusted, but miracles were a personal endorsement from God himself. On a spiritual resume, on a spiritual resume that is a good selling point. <clears throat> so he is separated and made a special teacher about the good news of Jesus Christ, of which he will now tell them in great de detail in his letter to them. And that is a great resume in that first verse. I, if I'm the head of a new group of believers in Rome, I am hiring this guy, so to speak, to teach my people. The second, third, and fourth verse are also like a resume that Paul is writing, but it's for Jesus, not that Jesus needs a resume. But he's extolling Jesus Christ as the Messiah because that is the most important idea in all of what is written here in Romans. And there are several proofs here of who Jesus is. Verse 2 said, He was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. When a prophecy comes true 500 or 1,000, 1,500 years later, that's a pretty good sign that something is true. Paul then says in verse 7 about this Jesus that he was descended from David according to the flesh. This was a promise that the Messiah would be an ancestor in the family tree of King David. And that promise can be found in 2 Samuel 7, 12, and uh, 13, and I'll read that. It says, when your days are over and, you're re and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God spoke this through, the, through Nathan the prophet, and Nathan the prophet told David the king this about a thousand years before Jesus came. The Jewish Christians in Rome would have understood this, and they would have helped their fellow Gentile believers understand it too. Who is the only king that could even possibly have a throne forever? Only Jesus. 
So that's just uh, one prophecy, and it's a, it's a big one. A son of David, or perhaps we could understand it better if we said a son of a son of a son of a son of David, so to speak, would be Messiah, and Jesus of Nazareth was that son. Verse 4 says, And was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And it means in addition to the last verse, verse 3, where he was proved to be the Messiah because he was a son of David, he was also proved to be the Messiah by the greatest miracle of all time, his resurrection after being dead for three days. Again, if we may go back to the resume idea uh, that Paul is writing for Jesus, and so that his writers can be even more sure that Jesus is their Messiah and Savior, these two things. Son of David equals Messiah. Resurrected from the dead equals Messiah. And there you have the best resume ever. And people who may hire people like us one day um, also like to have something called references on a resume. References are people you can contact about the character and truthfulness of the person on the resume who wants the job. And they, and, and they want to know if they are who they say they are. Jesus not only had the best resume ever, but he also had the best references. Paul the Apostle here... And God the Father. And here's what God said in reference to Jesus. Matthew 3.17. God said out loud when Jesus was baptized, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Matthew 17.5. God said out loud on the Mount of Transfiguration, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him up to a high mountain. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration because of what takes place next. Jesus there was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Then Peter started stuttering and yammering because he hadn't learned how to keep his mouth shut yet. And then God the Father spoke up from the cloud and said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And how's that for a reference? And by the way, some more awesome references right there in Elijah and Moses. Amen? Okay, on to verse 5. This is after Paul has established Jesus' divinity. And he says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So Paul has received a special grace that includes being chosen as an apostle. According to this verse... Why? Why has he been chosen to be an apostle? How is he supposed to use his special God-given gifts? What would Paul say is his reason now for living? There are two reasons here in this verse. The verse says to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now let's read from another translation that helps explain. This is the same verse, verse 5. It says, through Christ... God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. So the two reasons for Paul's existence are so people will obey God and so people will bring glory and fame to Jesus. And that's our calling too. So how are people going to obey Jesus and bring fame to Jesus if they don't know much about him or what he desires from them? And with that question, you now know why Romans was written. 
so people would know what to obey and who Jesus Christ truly is on a deeper level. As Paul would say later in Romans, Romans 10, verses 14 and 15, he said, How then are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? But how are they to preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Well, Paul has been sent to preach and bring that good news, and at this time, by way of this letter to the Romans. So then two verses together to end this resume introduction section. Romans 1, 6, and 7. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ... To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. The first line, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, just means this is for those who are already Christians. Romans is uh, not just going to be used for converting souls throughout the centuries, but edifying souls that are already converted. Edify meaning to instruct and improve, especially in moral and religious knowledge. To aid in improving someone spiritually. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 is a good verse to help remember what edify means. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And then we come to Romans 1.8-10. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you. Always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Do you thank God for each other, as Paul says he does here? Do you mention each other constantly in your prayers for one another? I don't mind telling you when I asked this question upstairs, there was a little bit of squirming, which I like to see that as a teacher. It means it's hidden just right. It causes me to squirm sometimes when I read it. Praying for each other gets easier and easier as we begin to form these Christian friendships where we rely on each other in a more profound way as we try to do what Hebrews 3.13 teaches us to do, encouraging one another every day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. As we do that, it becomes easier and easier to pray for each other constantly. The second part of verse 8 says, Your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Why would the faith of the Christians who lived in Rome at that time be proclaimed, in all, all, be proclaimed all over the world? Well, have you ever heard of Nero? <clears throat> he was the emperor of Rome from around AD 54 until around 68 AD, and he was insanely deranged and mean as they come. You may be discouraged by our current leadership, but Nero, wow. (laughs) He murdered his own mother. He He murdered his brother. He murdered his first wife, Octavia. And he was just getting started. And he allegedly uh, killed his second wife. He started the Great Fire of Rome in 64 AD, and he blamed Christians. And he probably had Peter crucified and Paul beheaded. If Nero was in the youth group, we'd have to kick him out. So my question was concerning the second half of verse 8. Why would the faith of the Christians who lived in Rome at that time be proclaimed all over the world? What can we deductively reason from some of the facts? Deductively or deduced meaning to determine something by reason and tracing other facts to their logical conclusion. 
Well, let's trace some facts and see if we can find the reason that Paul says that their faith is talked about all over the world. Fact number one, Paul's letter is to the Christians living in Rome. Fact number two, Nero is probably the emperor of Rome at that time of Paul's letter. And fact number three, Nero hated Christians. He hated everybody, but he especially hated Christians. He crucified them. He fed them to wild animals. He even covered them with tar and impaled them on a post and set them on fire and used them as human torches just so he could see his garden at night. So from those facts, we can deduce that the reason their faith is talked about all over the world is because they are undergoing the worst persecution happening in the world at that time and still keeping the faith. They are the greatest example in the world at that time of what it means to persevere, a very important Christian idea. Christians all over the world heard about it and were encouraged by their example, and Paul is here reporting that to them so they would also be encouraged. Now, I told the youth all of this about Nero so that I could ask them this question. Have you ever asked yourself, could you be treated this badly and still have faith in a Christ that loves you and is in total control. It's good to ponder these things from time to time. To test your own faith. And to be honest with yourself about your own faith. But you can only do that if you're honest with yourself. In God's providence, we are also studying the seven letters to the seven churches in our morning meetings. And most of them seem to be undergoing some kind of persecution as well. And Jesus tells them, those that are undergoing persecution, that in some way they need to persevere. They need to patiently endure. To the church in Smyrna, he said, be faithful unto death. To the church in Thyatira, he said, hold fast until I come. To the church in Philadelphia, he said, hold fast to what you have. These these seven letters were not just to these churches, but to all churches in all time, including Mount Moriah Baptist Church, Church. So it's good to imagine what Paul might say to us as a group or individually how would, we, how would he describe us if we were undergoing such a persecution? It's healthy to think of those things. Verses 9 and 10. They go together because they are one idea. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Now again, here is a mortal man praying constantly for others. And Paul is not our God. He is not someone that we are to worship. He is a sinful human being just like us. He is a brother, but he is a mentor somewhat from afar. An older brother in the faith to be sure. And he is an example of praying and he prays all the time. And we can follow that example. Do you have something that you pray about all the time? If Paul did pray all the time, we can. Being prayerful is not one of the exclusive gifts of an apostle. To be able to pray to a holy God that will hear us is a gift that has been given to all of us. So to show you how human Paul was, remember the wretched man that I am text from the second half of Romans chapter 7. Verse 15 in, in that chapter said, For I do not understand my own actions, for I, do, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Can anybody relate to that, Apostle? Verse 18 and 19, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 
For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That's tough. Verse 24 and 25, though, where he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we can all say a hearty amen to that. So that guy, Paul, prays for his friends all the time. So let's pray more some too. I will say, and this is a shout out to the youth that they're here. I will say that I have asked our youth to pray for a physical ailment that I have. And without fail, including this morning, they ask me about it every single week. And say they've been praying for it every single week. So, praise the Lord for that. So in our study upstairs, we did get through verses 11 and 12 where Paul says this. He said, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. We further explained how Paul shows his deep love for these that God is placing under his care. And what a great example that is. How he longed so badly to see them that they may mutually edify each other. And frankly, just love on each other in person a little bit. Amen? Um, You can almost hear the love and you can hear the emotion in his voice. But then we skipped forward from verse 12 to verses 16 and 17, which say the following. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now in the King James Bible, that last phrase is, the just shall live by faith. And it's not better, but that's how it's kind of come down to us through the centuries. And that's kind of how we have always said it. The just shall live by faith. Those words could be the theme for the Reformation. By the way, uh, I asked our youth, which, you know, I ask them a lot of stuff, a lot of things. Can they define certain things? I asked our youth, why did they call it the Reformation and not just the formation? And some of them figured it out. Because something that had been formed perfectly long ago by Jesus and the apostles had slowly but steadily been torn apart to where it was barely recognizable anymore. So it had to be reformed, not formed originally, a reformation. Luther was converted when God made him understand Romans 1, verse 17. So you see how important that verse, the just, or that phrase, the just shall live by faith, is to all Christians, including us. So let's try to understand it a little bit. What does just mean? The just shall live by faith. Just means totally approved by and acceptable to God. And only one person was ever truly just, all by themselves, with no outside help, and that was Jesus. But this verse is talking about other people who are just. Who are they, and how are they just also? The just are those who have faith in Jesus. In other words, because of my faith in what Christ did for me, I will live and not experience the second death. The just will live by faith. The just will live because of faith. They can't earn life eternal. They they must have faith that Jesus earned it for them. What is justice? Not just, but justice. Justice means you get what you deserve. That's not what you're after here. Does any normal human being deserve heaven? Only Jesus deserves heaven. So he must make us just 
And that is what caused Luther to quit uh, trying to earn the unearnable and driving himself crazy. R.C. Sproul would say literally crazy and just rest in the promises of God. So on we go to Romans 1, verses 18 through 20. As we begin to learn more about this evil world we are living in and why it is like it is. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We had recently talked upstairs about the thing that Jesus hated most. And that seemed to be when people misrepresent his words and his message. You see that most clearly in Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees but also in his letters to the seven churches, and it makes me shudder for the church in general, and it makes me teach and preach with an awesome respectful fear because of his not wanting to be misrepresented. Jesus hates people to teach lies about him. He hates to be represented by false preaching and teaching. Another name for misrepresenting Jesus is suppressing the truth, as Paul uh, calls it here in verse 18. Misrepresenting Jesus and suppressing the truth mean virtually the same thing here, especially in light of John 14, 6, which says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So misrepresenting Jesus is literally suppressing the truth. And God's special wrath is preserved for those who do this. I'll read verse 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And what does wrath mean? Wrath means great anger, passionate anger, bursting with anger, the kind of anger that punishes harshly. And what are we Christians saved from? We don't always give the right answer on this. We are saved from God's wrath. God saves us from himself. And praise him for it. In these verses, his wrath will be directed at those of mankind that are ungodly and and unrighteous and have tried to hide or suppress the truth. What are some ways that mankind has lied or suppressed the truth about the God of our Bibles in our day? I bet we could get a really long list. I have a short one. How about evolution or the Big Bang Theory? Is there not some suppression of the truth there? How about other religions that say they are the way to heaven? Is that not suppressing the truth about God? How about that a child can choose for themselves whether they are a male or female? Is that suppressing the truth about God? How about that it is okay to kill children in their mother's womb and call it abortion and not murder? Is that suppressing the truth about God? So can we, as a country... If we don't repent and begin giving God the credit he deserves and begin honoring his laws and his ways, shouldn't we as Christians expect his wrath and his passionate anger to come down on our country and this world? I would say so. Most of the people that are doing these things in our country have heard of Jesus and they know about the Bible and they just don't care. They're a little worse than lukewarm. 
But what about people that have never heard the name of Jesus and don't know what a Bible is? Can they be guilty of suppressing the truth about God? Well, what do the next verses say? Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. I don't know about you, but I probably do know this about you. You're probably the exact same way. But I can't hold and observe a baby's hand without acknowledging God and giving him glory. In fact, I'll be doing that very thing with my grandson next week. Raise the roof. Or can you look up at the stars on a really clear night and not give him glory? Or see a beautiful view in the mountains or a sunrise at the beach without being overwhelmed by God's creative power and awesomeness? And his love for his creation, of which you and I are a part. What makes you think of God when you see it? For us, behind it all is Jesus and the cross. But what Paul is saying here is that even those who don't know Jesus and don't know the Bible should still understand that there is a glorious creator behind all of this beautiful creation and people are without excuse. Not an evolutionary process, not a big bang. Those are not the things that we worship. That is just man's attempt to suppress the truth, and God hates it and will eventually unleash his wrath against it. Here's a quote from one of my favorites to explain this a little bit more. And if you ever want to hear somebody get (laughs) passionate about this, it's R.C. Sproul. Here's a quote from him. He says, Every person on the planet knows that God exists and that he is eternal, That he is immutable, meaning unchanging, that he is self-existent, and that he is holy. This leaves people without excuse. What does Paul have in mind? What excuse does he anticipate? What excuse does every sinner harbor in his heart that he will use on the day of judgment? If only I had known, or I had no way of knowing. Every unrepentant sinner is depending on using the excuse of ignorance to get them by. But Paul says that the clarity of God's self-disclosure to every human being leaves every human being without excuse. That's tough. So next and finally are verses 21 through 23 in Romans chapter 1. And they say, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So another one of our favorites upstairs, Charles Spurgeon, he says this in response to verse 21, and it's a doozy. Will you kindly notice that according to this verse, knowledge is of no use if it does not lead to holy practice? They knew God, but it was no good to them to know God because they didn't glorify him as God. So it does not matter what you think or how much you know unless it leads you to glorify God. End of quote. Now we call him Chuck Spurgeon upstairs because he visits so so often in the form of quotes that we feel like we get to know him pretty well. Have you heard the saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know? It applies here. 
Albert Einstein knew a lot about our creation and the universe, but he didn't seriously glorify the creator. Same with Stephen Hawking, if you've heard of him. I read Stephen Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time, and my brain started melting and coming out of my ears. It was one of the more brilliant books ever written by a famously brilliant man, but Stephen Hawking said this, There is no God. No one created our universe, and no one directs our fate. This leads me to a profound realization. There is probably no heaven and no afterlife either. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe, and for that I am extremely grateful. To that I would ask, grateful to who? Now he is a perfect example if it's, if, of if it's not, it's, not, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And he is a perfect example of verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. A very brilliant man, but foolish. Do you suppose, considering his current situation, that he would gladly trade, up to, trade in 100 IQ points to have been instead a wise man in Jesus? <clears throat> you know that he would. Albert Einstein, I also read his book. The name of that book, it's a long title, was Relativity, the Special and the General Theory, a clear explanation that anyone can understand. And I take issue with that title because I didn't understand. <clears throat> Einstein is generally thought to be the most intelligent human being who ever lived. There's no way to know that for sure, but he was absolutely brilliant. And he knew more about the creation than anyone probably ever, but listen to one of that brilliant man's quotes. The word God is, for me, nothing more than the expression and product of human weaknesses. The Bible is a collection of honorable but still primitive legends which are nevertheless pretty childish. Childless here could be interpreted as foolish. In fact, it is foolish for him to say that. Albert Einstein believed that a belief in God and the Bible is foolish. He thought that you and I were foolish. But who does the Bible say is foolish in verse 21 and the first part of 22? They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So... Stephen Hawking and Albert Einstein, two of the most intelligent humans God ever created, had incredible brains but had foolish hearts. They were fools. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. And where are these two brilliant men right now? They were foolish. And so that's how far we have gone upstairs, and that is how far we will go this morning. I do kind of get the feeling, or I did when I was preparing, that we ended on a sour note. I know that's not true. There are no sour notes in the Bible, although there are certainly some verses that are sweeter than others. So I will leave you with a few of uh, those uh, sweet verses from Romans. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes, and that should be sweet, sweet music, all of that, to our ears. Amen? 
All right, before I pray for us, let's not forget we do have a vote on the budget after we pray. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for being able to meet together like this. We thank you for Paul. We thank you for the life, the suffering that he did so he could write not only to these Romans, uh, but also to us. Lord, it's just, it's, it's priceless that you can't put a price on the book of Romans and your word. We thank you so much for it, Lord. And we do ask again that you heal uh, Michael and the Shafran family, whoever's sick. And Lord, we also pray for Miss Connie that you would heal her up. And Lord, there are other people who need your healing touch today. Lord, we ask for that. Uh, And, Lord, uh, we just want to praise you and give you all honor and glory. Lord, you are worthy of it all. You are worthy of our obedience. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Brother Joey. Uh, the, The ushers will be handing out the ballots. If you'll recall, two weeks ago we presented the proposed 2020